She's now waited nearly nine years. It'll be 10 years before she's even on a proper surgery waiting list. I think it's appalling, absolutely appalling. That was Michael Mara, an MSP based in Dundee, on a health scandal which we will get to in depth shortly. Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the award-winning Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'm joined by Justin Bowie to look at the latest in Scottish politics and how the decisions in Parliament affect you. We'll look at the real-life impact of what MSPs are up to, dig into our exclusive reporting over the week and catch up with a bit of analysis on what the polls say after the English elections and what those results might mean for Scotland. First, while we watched our political leaders verbally jousting in Parliament this week, one MSP was waiting in the wings, hoping to raise a story which we revealed in print and online on the 10th of May. It concerns a Dundee woman who waited seven years for surgery for a debilitating, life-changing condition which needs attention. She fears she will actually be waiting about a decade. Her story, which you can read in full on our pages, caught attention. Another woman, I should I should say we're, we're not naming them, read it and, and came forward to share her story, which is also now online and in print. Michael Mara, a Dundee-based MSP for the North East region, was in Parliament on Thursday looking to raise the question with First Minister Hamza Yousaf, a former Health Secretary, of course. But it wasn't to be. Uh, they had other things to shout at each other about. Justin Bowie caught up with Michael Mara in Parliament just after FMQs. He began by asking how he'd been involved with our campaign for help. Well, in back in 2015, my constituent was uh, diagnosed and uh, uh, scheduled for to have some form of treatment for a prolapse, a lower pelvic prolapse. Um, and it's led to her losing the best years of her life in reality. She um, is incontinent. Uh, she can't sleep with her husband. Uh, she can't exercise. And um, it has made had a huge impact on our day-to-day life and our mental health. Um, and having those conversations with her have been really distressing at times. Um, but she has now waited for NHS procedure for for this for, for surgery now for uh, over eight years. I think that's utterly disgraceful. Utterly disgraceful. The first minister now, the first minister in a letter that she received in 2022, said she should be guaranteed surgery within year, by one year. By that point, she had waited seven years. She's now waited nearly nine years. It'll be 10 years before she's even on a proper surgery waiting list. I think it's appalling, absolutely appalling. And does this just sum up the scale of the crisis within the NHS at the moment? Is it, is it a case that just exemplifies how bad things are for you? I think that's part of it. Sorry, I'm quite I'm quite angry about this right now. Even speaking about it, I, I've, it's, I think that that is part of it. It's part of the issue. It's also an issue, I think, of systemic neglect of women's health. And I think in NHST side, um, I have campaigned and worked with people who have been victims of the the breast cancer. Um, a scandal in terms of the collapse of that service in, in Tayside um, and I think that they are emerging problems and this is just one of them for gynaecology services I think women's health in particular is in a state of crisis nationally we do have one in seven people in Scotland on waiting lists but I think that this case is even beyond all of that for somebody to be waiting this long for treatment and losing 
I mean, this woman is, I don't give her her full age, but she's around 50 years old. 10 years of your life ruined. Uh, That's not the NHS that we set up and that the public fund and that we should have expectations of. You obviously wanted to raise this at First Minister's Questions today. Obviously, you are unfortunately able to do that. How do you feel about that? I mean, it's a really important case that you wanted to bring up today. So are you quite frustrated that you weren't able to even ask Kamsa Yousaf about it? And we were speaking just a few minutes after First Minister's Questions, and yes is the answer to that. I think you can hear the frustration in my voice because it shouldn't come to the point where somebody has to speak anonymously in a newspaper, go to their MSP, and try and plead for getting basic surgery that could completely transform their life. When they have a promise, a guarantee written in law that these things should happen. So it shouldn't come to that, but it does. You have to raise these questions with the First Minister. And the First Minister is personally responsible for this. He set the guarantee as Health Secretary. After failing upwards, as he has done, he's doing nothing to resolve these issues. And their stewardship of the NHS is appalling. All of this predates COVID. You see by the, the number of years my constituent has been waiting. And actually, I, I, my heart goes out to her in terms of the, the way that she has been prepared. This is the, one of the most personal of issues for a woman to be talking about. And actually, the challenge of putting this in the public domain for her, I think, was extreme. But that's where she had come to. We had written, we had tried to have conversations with the chief executive of NHS Tayside, coming to nothing. And to be left in the situation where all we can do is try and put direct political pressure in public on the First Minister to do something about it tells a story in itself. It should not come to that. The patient has obviously raised concerns that there could be other women out there experiencing you know, a similar situation to her. Do you believe that that could be the case? Certainly. And actually, that's part of the reason that she was prepared to go public on it. And I think, it, I, again, I would pay tribute to her um, because she is very conscious of that. When she, she actually went for a pre-operation appointment and it was the receptionist when she went for a pre-operation appointment that told her, we don't actually have a surgeon. Now, if there's no surgeon in the NHST side in Dundee doing this work, of course, there will be other women waiting. And we've also had some acknowledgement that there are other women who've been sent around the country. But what's happened to my constituents is she was referred on to NHS Fife and she was told that for an initial consultation she would have to wait 50 weeks. 50 weeks for a problem that was diagnosed nine years ago. You talked a bit about you know women's health being neglected and perhaps not being paid attention to properly. Is that really a systemic problem that you feel needs addressed where severe problems that women are facing in terms of healthcare are just either being ignored or just perhaps not taken seriously or just not addressed on the timescale that they should be? I believe so. Um, and I think that the, the the scale of some of those issues that I've mentioned already, the breast cancer scandal in, in Dundee, um, the, and I just don't think that would have happened if that was about men, to be brutally honest. I don't. I don't think if this was about a man's health, it would happen either. I think priorities are different. I'm sure the government would dispute that. I'm sure NHS Tayside would dispute that. But the casework that I say says something different. This woman, other women, just try to get on, toil through, look after their families, try and work, get on with it. Um, And I 
believe, and one of the things I would have asked the First Minister today is how many women does he think are suffering in silence as a result of this? These, these are not uncommon issues, prolapses. And we went through the, the um, mesh scandal, right? a, a cheap um, and uh, easy way of trying to solve this issue, which turned into a total disaster and that people had to fight for justice for. And clearly the end of some of those procedures has led to part of the delay. But that was years ago, years ago, and there's no solution. And do you believe this neglect, is it not just exclusive to NHS Tayside? Is this a national problem? Is it a problem that is just kind of due to perceptions of women's health and not enough attention being paid? Or is there a very specific problem here in NHS Tayside that perhaps doesn't exist in other health boards? I know that colleagues, MSP colleagues, Labour colleagues have concerns about other parts of the country. Um, but I believe that health out outcomes would speak to a broader problem, a broader challenge. Um, I think in essence that's probably the next step for me and for Labour colleagues to do more in that area, to ask some more of those questions and to fight for a better service. But it feels to me that it's attitudinal in, in the government and in in, in the NHS. Um, I know that's not a, a, a full answer to, um, I need to get a better, better picture of that. I think we all need a better picture of that um, because I think that women would rightly demand it of us. On this particular case, given that awareness has now been raised, given it's now been brought up to the Scottish government, um, you know, kind of even if not today, behind the scenes at least, do you think we're on the right track to a positive solution where this patient can get the treatment she needs, or are you still sceptical that that's going to happen, given the ordeal she's faced so far? Well, she received a phone call today um, from NHST side uh, and uh, about a further consultation. Uh, so I think that's some level of acknowledgement that they have made a bloody mess of this. Um, and they, so from having had referred it out to Fife, now we're talking about NHS Tayside having another look. Um, so thank you to The Courier um, for DC Thompson's for highlighting this issue because hopefully, hopefully it will make some kind of difference. But if there is no surgeon, that surgery has to happen somewhere. And we, so the, the sceptic in me would say that there may have been some communication between the Scottish government almost expecting me to raise this today in Parliament and actually being able to lay claim to having a call having been made today may have been part of an answer that was in there. So maybe there will be some form of movement, but I, I won't rest on this um, I, until that surgery has taken place and my constituent has some semblance of her, the life that she should be living back. Okay, the story speaks for itself, but it's worth repeating, this is a harrowing case. And as I said, the full details are online at The Courier, but we can talk a little bit more about what it means in general, Justin. Women listening to this, whatever they are, might well recognise this scenario uh, across Scotland and the UK and probably everywhere. Politically, what does this say about the government's struggles at the moment? Is this an NHS mistake, a government one? Who has got to pick up the pieces here? Well, it seems like there's almost a bit of blame to be shared here, isn't there? In the sense that, you know, we have widespread problems with the NHS. We have long waiting times. We have backlogs due to COVID and, you know, we've had staffing shortages as well in, in some areas. But I thought it was especially interesting when Michael said, you know, this almost goes beyond those waiting time problems. This isn't somebody just waiting a long time in A&E. This isn't just a sort of short backlog. This is a substantial period of somebody's life where 
something that is just affecting them every single day and, and they just can't get it addressed through the, the NHS. And, you know, Michael talked about, about the breast cancer scandal in NHS Tayside and how women's health is often neglected. We have, you know, some of our readers at the Press and Journal will be well aware of the problems which have surrounded um, Murray maternity as well. So there clearly seems to be a widespread problem here where women's health is perhaps being neglected and that that's not necessarily a new thing. You know, you think going back, I suppose, like a lot of professions, the medical profession and research and, you know, I suppose surgery and all these things, it's probably very often been male-dominated. So sometimes women's problems are perhaps not discussed well enough. They go under the radar. And it almost seems like a sort of you have a really dangerous combination where you have problems that maybe are under-discussed. You then add that up with all the problems the health service has. You then have staffing shortages. And suddenly these things are just being completely neglected. And clearly it's a difficult thing for, for women to come forward and talk about. These are very, very personal problems, very personal difficulties. And it's obviously very, very brave that they have been able to do that. Yeah. We haven't named them at their own request. They've already put themselves through quite a lot just by having to speak up. And of course, people who know these people will, will know more about it. But we have 12 women in Tayside that we know of. They're currently waiting for the particular procedure. Um, it's unclear how long they'll have all been waiting for the treatment. And the only surgeon in Tayside trained at the moment to, to, to do this procedure is currently signed off on long-term leave. So, of course, we asked... Uh, NHS Tayside to respond to all the, the, the concerns that have been raised and in a statement a Tayside spokeswoman said they acknowledge the situation is distressing for the women affected and they apologise um, they go on to say our clinical team is urgently looking at options for these patients to ensure they receive their surgery as soon as possible and we'll be in contact with them once plans are confirmed we asked the government because unfortunately the question didn't get raised at First Minister's questions and in a statement, the Scottish government also apologised and said they would follow up with NHS Tayside as a matter of urgency. So you can you can sort of tell from the way that those statements were worded as well that the government want to raise it with Tayside and Tayside are going to speak to the women, but no no concrete answers there. And this is um, a situation that will be replicated everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think it's incredibly worrying as well. And Michael pointed to this where... You have something that's a serious issue and for it to actually get addressed, it needs to be raised with the government and raised with the health board and brought to a national newspaper. I mean, clearly we're not a dictatorship in Scotland or in the UK, but you have almost these things in other countries where, you know, dictators go on the radio and they speak about, oh, there's this problem in a local area, I'm going to fix this for you and it helps boost their popularity ratings. But that's a problem because you shouldn't need to go on the radio to your national leader for a problem that should be sorted at a local level. And it feels like in a, in a very different context, there's a bit of that here where it should not take patients having to go to their newspaper, having to repeatedly go to their MSP to get these things sorted. And the fact that there's now some indication that action's going to be taken and discussions are going to be had shows to me that clearly there has to be more that can be done in these cases behind the scenes. I, you know, I get the NHS is inc incredibly overstretched. I, I get the Scottish government has a lot on its plate. But I think it does hint to that problem of, you know, women's health being neglected again, mm. where until these problems are being brought up in a way that's going to reflect badly on the health board and the government, this is something that could have just completely slipped under the radar. Yeah. And as Michael alluded to, there could be more women, you know, experiencing similar weights and similar problems who have not spoken out yet and who aren't getting any support at all. And 
considering that we're meant to be able to trust the NHS and you know we're meant to be able to rely on the NHS, that's incredibly worrying. Okay, well, we've talked about kind of what wasn't said in Parliament, but what what was said, what what crowded everything out here. While questions about these sort of topics are pushed aside, party leaders spent most of their time on Thursday, at least, pointing fingers at each other, calling each other Tories, including the Tories, I think. Uh, at one point, it looked like Hamza Yousaf and the Conservative leader Douglas Ross were just locked in a fight about who was not as disliked as much by the public. What were they referring to? Opinion polls, of course. It felt like last week was a bit of a watershed moment where attention shifted to the next general election. And that was all because of the English Council elections just over a week ago where the Tories were pegged back, Labour pushed forward, Lib Dems and the Greens claimed victories in local areas. It meant very little, if not anything, in Scotland, of course, because we were not taking part in that election and it didn't cover London, other metropolitan areas and Wales. So... What analysis can we apply to it to understand what's happening here in Scotland? What was the argument all about at First Minister's questions? Why were they so pepped up, do you think? Well, this was quite an interesting one. It, there was a lot of bickering going on, especially between Hamza Yousaf and Anna Sawa. And I suppose it was a very classic argument in some ways, but, you know, distilled down into its purest form where... You know, Labour are, on, on, are sort of having a bit of a resurgence, but Hamza Yousaf was very much just kind of trying to liken the Labour Party to the Tories and very much saying to Anna Sarber, well, you're not that, that different from the Tories. The best way we can get rid of a Conservative government forever is, you know, via independence. Labour obviously opposed that. And it got very, you know, back and forth, not much substance to these discussions. Yeah. Where it becomes a bit odd, though, is that, you know, around the start of the week, uh, Stephen Flynn, the SNP Westminster leader, was making a direct appeal to Labour and Lib Dem voters to back the SNP at the next election, basically in any kind of Tory-held seat, because the SNP are really the only opposition in these seats, even with Labour's resurgence. You know, there are certain areas where they just don't really have any footprint at all. But it feels like a weird mixed message, where on the one hand, the SNP want these voters, these Labour supporters, to back them in these seats. But when it comes to Holyrood and when it comes to FMQs, Hamza Yousaf is also just essentially saying Labour are just like the Conservatives. So if Labour really are like the Tories, why would you expect these voters to back you come an election? It, it seems like mixed messaging and a lot of it very yeah. much comes down to the minutiae of certain polls. I mean, you know, Hamza Yousaf's popularity ratings don't seem to be, or they're, they're not as strong as Nicola Sturgeon's were. A lot of the polls show Labour catching up, not necessarily just due to Hamza Yousaf, but, you know, the wider scandals that have engulfed the SNP. And clearly the SNP are feeling the, the pressure a little bit there. They will argue that in, in many respects they're still ahead. You know, they're, they're not, they've not fallen behind yet. But when it comes to Westminster, Labour could pick up a lot of seats here. And the SNP are probably aware that Labour are almost certainly going to make gains. And the SNP are perhaps thinking, well, if we're going to lose some seats to Labour, if we can then try and win some seats from the Conservatives, that could perhaps make up for that. And that obviously comes from last week's local elections. The problem may be, though, that if the SNP fall back by enough, even if the Tories have a bad election, they may still be able to retain some of their seats up here. You know, yeah. If the SNP couldn't take these seats in 2019, can they do it next time? It's, uh -huh. it's difficult to see that happening. Yeah, um, we were speaking to our old friend of the show, Ballot Box Scotland, Alan Folds, with some interesting thoughts on all of that as well. Because the Conservatives have got a ribbon of support along the south of Scotland and the northeast, where the, there isn't so many Labour voters or Lib Dem voters at the moment. 
I mean, you look at Aberdeenshire and Murray. Murray, of course, as a seat, will disappear. It's being the, the boundaries are being redrawn. That's Douglas Ross's constituency. So there's a few variables there. We don't really know how it might play out uh, if there is a labour resurgence in the northeast. There's not enough of them to really swing it one or the other. Who's going to really change their minds? That's like what you're talking about there. So, in short, the English elections, do they really tell us anything that we can apply? Yeah, I mean, when I spoke to Alan Folds, he had the interesting view that if you're still voting Labour and Lib Dem in these SNP Tory swing seats, you, you probably dislike the SNP. Like, you know, you're maybe at a point where getting rid of the SNP is not your priority. What he did say, conversely, though, kind of ironically, is that if you like Labour and you previously voted Conservative, it may be less, you know, Labour voters going to the SNP, which could swing a seat, and almost more, you know, Tory voters going to Labour, because we have these complicated discussions about tactical voting, but sometimes voters just like a party or like a person, and they're not really thinking about, you know, if I vote for them, do they win this seat, and how does that then affect things at Westminster? But what I think the English elections might show is that there seem to be a lot of voting against the Conservatives down south, you know, in the sense that the Lib Dem has made gains, as you said, the Greens made gains, and there seemed to be quite a few areas where the headline almost was people have just looked for who's the party that are going to beat the Conservatives, and they voted for them. So, you know, on one on the one hand, I say a lot of people don't necessarily kind of pay attention to tactical voting, but there did seem to be a lot of, you know, just trying to get rid of the Conservatives down south, but there's different dynamics up here. You know, the Conservatives don't have yeah. a stronger vote up here. The, the You know, the independence debate has a lot of prominence. So some people might not really like the Conservatives, but may again just think, need to keep out the SNP, I'm going to stick yeah. with the Conservatives. And that could play into it as well. So there's definitely different dynamics in Scotland, I would say. Yeah. Well, one of the, the big elephants in the room, once we've got through all those different layers, this Brexit, I know that we've moved on um, a few years since that vote, but it's it's very much a live issue for a lot of people, a lot of industries. It's possibly something that the Conservative government at Westminster wants to say, well, that's all done, move on. Is it still in people's minds when they're coming to sort of go through the checklist of things that they, they think about in an election? There are clear and demonstrable penalties almost for, for leaving the EU in, in, in places like the North East, where we just talked about the Conservatives having a strong vote. But is it maybe the case that the, the kind of tribes, political tribes, are already settled behind their champions? So have the, both parties kind of maxed out the the emotional feelings about whether the Brexit vote was right or wrong, does it does it make any difference now? Perhaps a bit. I mean, I think that there was so many years where Brexit dominated the headlines that people were almost sick of it. And it almost feels like something that perhaps simmers along in the background. When you think cost of living crisis and the Tory scandals and all the things associated with that, there's perhaps this sense that Brexit, instead of being its own thing, almost sometimes just feels a little bit bundled in with all that. You know, there's yeah. a sense of... I mean, I've seen some polling recently, which has, you know, if we were to vote now, the Remain side would do much stronger. And I wonder if there's perhaps some Brexiteers who trusted the Tories in 2016 don't trust them now. And they think, right, if I don't trust the Tories on the economy and on, you know, being scandal free, should I have trusted them on Brexit? But I don't think it's necessarily foremost in voters' minds. And it's quite interesting because, you know, this is another attack line that Hamza Yousaf and the SNP like to use in Labour. You know, they like to say, oh... Labour or pro-Brexit. I mean, I thought it was interesting during Prime Minister's questions, um, Stephen Flynn, you know, during his question, almost used it as a chance to attack Labour instead of, a, you know, attacking Rishi Sunak. And he was almost giving Rishi Sunak a bit of a free hit 
but there's clearly this sense of the SNP wanting to hammer Labour as pro-Brexit. But I suppose Labour down south are taking a pragmatic approach where clearly, you know, Keir Starmer and Anna Sauer and a lot of senior Labour figures, they didn't back Brexit. They don't like Brexit, but there's still perhaps this sense that, you know, no matter how much of a damp squib it is, no matter how bad it is, it's still what people voted for. And to turn around and say, we're getting rid of that might cause some anger. And perhaps among some Labour voters who are pro-EU as well, there's maybe a pragmatism there of, well, Keir, yes, Keir Starmer is not going to take us back into the EU, but in five, ten years, he's more likely to, you know, have a pro-EU approach than Rishi Sunak is, because Rishi Sunak obviously was a Brexiteer, and unlike actually a lot of Conservative Prime Ministers we've had, he was a Brexiteer in 2016 as well. So I think even among a lot of Labour supporters, there's maybe a sense of, well, Brexit is bad, but it's happened now. If we get a Labour government, that then perhaps starts the process to... Yeah at least normalising relations with the EU, maybe moving away from this confrontational approach and stopping this kind of, you know, being at loggerheads with Europe. And it might be a quite a slow process where we're not back in the EU, but Brexit is sort of just almost chipped away at a wee bit if it's not seen as a particularly good thing to have done. I mean, they're getting their arguments in pretty early and the attack lines from the Conservative side were really early and trying to sort of draw back to that Ed Miliband, Alex Salmond, SNP pulling the strings, coalition of chaos. Now there's there's a political slogan that now sounds utterly stupid. <laughs> Anyone who has had their eyes even just a, a wee bit open since uh, that slogan was created uh, many years ago will have sat and thought, well, thank goodness we didn't get any of that chaos. So to see that argument being pushed now, does that just make people kind of laugh? <laughs> does it have any bearing on anything anymore? <laughs> No one cares if the SNP are going to try and make a deal with the Labour Party, do they? I think the problem for the Tories maybe is that in 2015, this was quite emotive because it looked like we might end up with a hung parliament. The, to the Tories get a, a narrow majority, but the polling was quite unpredictable. The SNP were on the up and it really looked like they might end up ho holding the balance of power. I think the problem is now that some polls show there could be a Labour minority, but considering the state the Conservatives are in and considering those results last week, there's also a lot of polling that's indicating Labour could just run away with this. They could, you know, they could end up with 400 plus MPs, in which case, you know, Keir Starmer would, wouldn't need half the Labour Party on his side, never mind the, the SNP. Mm. And I mean, I, I suppose it almost becomes a bit of a, you know, who blinks first if there is a hung parliament. Labour are arguing, well, we, you know, we dare the SNP to vote against us and to bring in the, the Tories. The SNP will say, yeah. well, we dare you to not let there be a referendum. It's hard to tell. I mean, I honestly couldn't really predict right now what would happen in that scenario. Labour will, you know, say, well, you know, we we hold the cards here. We're the biggest party. The SNP might say, well, Labour have been out of, out of power for over a decade. You know, would you really risk throwing that away? Mm -hmm. You know, it not giving us a referendum. But it also depends how things pan out in Scotland. If the polls narrow even further, we could be in a position where the SNP have a much smaller number of MPs that surely then reduces their sort of bargaining power. You know, if, if there's a hung parliament in the SNP of 55 seats, they maybe have more of a sort of moral authority there to say, well, well, hang on, we have a substantial amount of representation there. But if Labour make a big comeback in the SNP of 20, 25 seats, is there really the same kind of weight of authority? You know, if you can't even win the majority of seats, can you really demand a referendum? I, I think that becomes a key point because the SNP have always used this argument of, well, half of Scotland is backing us, therefore... 
that half deserves and wants a referendum. But if the SNP can only say get 35% of the vote, can they really argue, well, you know, we have the moral authority for a referendum? Yeah. It then becomes less based on that sort of moral idea and more on, well, the maths say we can bring down your government, therefore give us this. So yeah. it, it could be a really real big, real big headache for the SNP because their supporters will demand that they push for that referendum. But it, it's, it's hard to see them doing that if they have a smaller number of MPs, to be honest. Yeah. Okay, I mean, we are quite far out from a general election, obviously, but it, the, the election results in England and the polls narrowing quite a bit um, has clearly put the frighteners on a, on a few people, but, uh, you know, there's a long way to go. And on that note, leaving you hanging for another week's wait for the next episode of The Stushy. Just remains for me to thank Justin Bowie, our guest Michael Mara and producer Morvan McIntyre, and of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week, but until then, pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. <laughs>